Okay, we are in a preaching series in the book of Esther. Just to give you a very quick catch up uh, in case you've missed any of the last two weeks, the book of Esther was written at a time of winter for God's people. It was written 2000. 500 years ago. And the season of of winter for God's people that we find in the book of Esther was very similar to really the, the winter that we have been in over the last few years. The book itself is set in Persia, which is modern day Iran. And uh, King Xerxes is in power. This godlike figure is in charge of an empire of 127 provinces. He is a superly powerful, strong leader, almost godlike in how people viewed him. Last week, we met Mordecai and Esther. Now, both of these characters we're going to find out a lot more about in the coming weeks. But when we met them last week, they basically, although they were both Jews, had conformed to Persian culture. They hid their identity as Israelites and as God's people. Mordecai, if you remember, was working for Xerxes, the pagan king. His name, Mordecai, is a pagan name. He was living right in the middle of Susa, right at the heart of pagan culture. And the interesting thing that we have to remember is he didn't have to be there. The Jews had been liberated. They were able to be free. He didn't have to stay. He could have left, gone to join Nehemiah and Ezra and others rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. But he chose to stay in his comfortable life. Esther, who was the niece to Mordecai, had been entered, as we saw last week, into the Persian culture's society's version of the bachelor the contest to find the next queen of Persia, to find Xerxes' wife. And she'd been entered by her uncle into that contest. And both Mordecai and Esther hid their identity, and no one at that stage of the story knew that they were Jews. We we, we read all that compromise, disguise, hiding, And yet God is still at work. That's one of the themes of the book of Esther. God is at work in quiet providence. His hand is at work in all the events that we read. And we saw right at the end of uh, our, our time last week that God's grace and favor was on Esther. And the last bit of scripture we read was that Esther had been appointed as king, sorry, as king, as queen of Persia. She'd been appointed as Xerxes' wife. God's grace and God's favor is on undeserving, sinful people like Esther, like Mordecai, like you, and like me. So Esther is now queen, but both Mordecai and Esther have still, up until this point, kept their identity secret, and everybody thinks they are pure Persians. Okay, now you know when you watch a film or you read a book, there are certain scenes that, you, you, that are in the story, but you don't understand their relevance until later on. You don't understand that it's actually an incredible, hugely important part of the plot 
that you are being shown early on that will only come to fruition later on in the story. We're going to read a few verses right at the end of Esther chapter 2 that you're not going to find out the true significance of until later in the book. I want you to log what happens here, log it in your memory, and we're going to come back to it in a couple of weeks' time. But it's important that we read it, and you need to know that God is at work all the time, in all the events, in everything that is going on in the book of Esther. So we're going to read Esther chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresa, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate the king. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found out to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles, or some versions basically says they were hung. All this was recorded in the book of the annuals in the presence of the king. So very, very quickly, what has just happened there? What has happened was Mordecai overheard a plot to assassinate King Xerxes. She then goes, uh, he then, sorry, goes and tells Queen Esther, And Queen Esther tells the king, tells King Xerxes, tells her husband, and both the men are hung and killed, and it's written down in the book of Chronicles. The evidence of what happened is written down. The evidence that Mordecai was the one who foiled the plot is written down, that Mordecai saved the life of King Xerxes. But, 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 nothing then happened. You might expect Mordecai to get a reward. You might expect him to be promoted. But nothing happens at this moment. Log that incident. Because God is at work. God's timing and plan is perfect. That's the whole book of Esther. Although God isn't mentioned explicitly, God is at work through all of the timing and all of the events that we read. Okay, I want to show you quite a shocking picture. I want to show you a picture from February 2015. This picture is the moment before 21 Egyptian Christians were executed by ISIS on a beach in Libya. This is a picture of pure courage. In a video that was taken, you can see the men praying, calling out to Jesus moments before they were beheaded. Now, ISIS showed that video to the world to shock the world. But the response of the families was incredible. One of the mothers of one of the 25-year-old victims said this, I'm so proud of my son. He did not change his faith. I thank God he is taking care of him now. 
the men could have lived. Because what ISIS said was, if they made a simple confession to Allah, they would live. But if they didn't, they would die. If they made that simple confession, the knives would have been lowered. I wonder what would we have done in that situation? What would you have done if you found yourself in that situation? Now listen, most of us, if not all of us, won't face the blade of a terrorist, but we face critics, we face accusers. We face a family member who mocks our belief. We face colleagues who gossip about our convictions. We face a culture that rejects biblical truth and standards. So with that in mind, we're going to read Esther chapter Three. We're going to start with Esther chapter 3 and verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. After all these things, After all these things, Xerxes' first wife, Vashti, had kind of run away from him, just just resisted him, and he had a hissy fit. Xerxes had been defeated by the Greeks. His subjects were plotting to kill him. So Xerxes wants to make a statement to the empire that he is still strong and powerful. So what does he do? He promotes Haman the Agite. I mean, just the name, an Agite. He sounds like a baddie. He sounds like a baddie from from a movie, doesn't he? The Agite. He sounds like the, the dodgy one, the villain of the piece. Now, the Agites were enemies of the Israelites. If you go back in the Old Testament to the book of Exodus, you'll find that the very first people to attack the Israelites after they come through the Red Sea, the very first people to attack the Israelites were the Agites. They picked off the old, the sick, the stragglers. They were enemies of Israel. The descendants of King Agag came the Amalekites, and the Amalekites are all through the Old Testament as enemies of the Jews. So Haman was a direct descendant of the enemies of the Jews. He was, Haman, kind of an original anti-Semitic. He had a hatred of the Jews in his blood. So let's read on and find out what happens. Verse 2. All the royal officers at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. For the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay honor. Just pause here for a minute. Someone needs to capture this on a a kind of canvas. Someone needs to kind of draw this or paint this. You've got this gate, this towering gate. You've got all these officials who are bowing down. And you've got this self-important Haman walking through. Everyone is bowing. Everyone is immediately groveling in the dust. But Mordecai stands straight and tall. Mordecai does not budge. He stands there while everyone else is bowing all around him. 
Mordecai refuses to bow. This is a Mordecai moment. Let's read on. Then the royal officers, go back to verse 3. Then the royal officers at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day, they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. He kept on standing tall. He kept on refusing to bow. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. There it is. There it is. Finally, the camouflage is off. Finally, Mordecai says, I'm a Jew. I stand here. I will not bow. I stand here as an Israelite. His mask is taken off. He had been hiding behind this mask for so long, but this moment was a Mordecai moment. He takes off the mask. He stands strong and tall. He wouldn't bow the knee before an enemy of God. Verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay honor, he was enraged. He goes ballistic. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Haman goes ballistic, but he doesn't just want to kill Mordecai, he wants to destroy the whole Jewish race. He wants to annihilate them. I mean, this is a serious case of racism. This is a serious case of Haman felt superior to the race of, of the Israelites and wants to annihilate them and wipe them off the planet. Having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy the whole of the Jews in all of the kingdom of Xerxes. Verse 7. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Now, pause for a moment on verse 7. What's going on here? What's going on here is Haman and King Xerxes are casting lots for when to annihilate the Jews. They're deciding when in the calendar they are going to wipe out the Jewish race. Proverbs 16 and verse 33. People throw lots to make decisions, but the answer comes from the Lord. Again, you need to log what happens here. Because chance does not determine the date that is set for the annihilation of the Jews. Chance does not dictate it. God sets that date. You'll see when we read the rest of the story over the coming weeks that God delayed the date by 11 months. 11 months from this meeting to the date set in the diary for when they were going to wipe out the Jews. And that 11 month was a time for God's plan to unfold. Again, remember the delay. Remember God is at work. Remember the quiet providence of God. Let's read on verse 8. 
Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of other people, and they do not obey the king's law. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administratives for the royal treasury. He's paying people there. He's offering to pay people to kill the Jews. Let's go on. Next verse. So the king took his sign signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. King Xerxes doesn't care. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all of Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children. On a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and be made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. I mean, look at that, right, that last verse of the chapter, the last verse we're going to read today. Isn't it mind-boggling? Okay, Haman has just sent out an edict into all of the empire to kill and annihilate the Jews. The command is gone. It's got the king's signet ring marked, so it's got royal approval. This is going to happen. This is going to be put into place. And what do they do? What are Erxes and Haman doing? They're having a cocktail. They're having a cocktail and, and, and basically laughing and joking that a genocide is about to take place. Let me be honest for a moment with, 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 you, with you all. I don't know about you, but I think many of us as Christians in 2022 are a bit weary. There, there's a struggle that we are in. Many of us might have been wounded by things that have happened over the past few years. We're worried that this winter that we are in will never cease. We feel alone. We feel, well, I'm the only Christian at work. I'm the only Christian in my family. We feel like, like that we are alone. Living as a person of faith, as a Christian, in a faithless culture, which is basically what the Western culture has become, requires courage. Now, you, again, probably won't be asked to kneel before a tyrant. You probably, or there's a very slim chance of being persecuted by ISIS. But the chances are that you will be tempted to compromise your beliefs or to stay silent. 
The truth is that for all of us, Mordecai moments are coming. Mordecai moments are on their way. Let me give you a few examples. A professor at a university has a reputation for mocking and taking the mickey out of Christians. He's coming up to Easter and he starts openly in front of the class, mocking the claims of the resurrection, mocking the belief that Jesus died and rose again. What do you do? Do you raise your hand? Do you challenge? What do you do? You're out late at work. You've been working long hours. You do overnights with your team. It's rough on your marriage, the hours spent apart. You realize that one of your co-workers is very attractive, very attentive, and very available. The texts that they send you make that obvious. What will you do? What will you do? You're out with your friends at the pub and everyone's having a drink. And in that context, someone tells a racist story, a racist joke, and everyone laughs. What will you do? Will you speak up? Will you challenge? What will you do? A new job. You just started a new job. As you're being shown the ropes, as you're going through all the rigmarole of how things work, is mentioned to you time and time again by different members of the team that you can fiddle and mess around with your expenses. It's expected. They don't pay you a huge amount, but you can put huge amounts of things on your expenses. Everyone does it. No one gets caught. What will you say? And what will you do? Mordecai moments. Mordecai moments that reveal our true allegiance. What will you do? I want to give you, to close, three practical applications of Mordecai moments. Number one, resistance matters. Long after an act of compliance is forgotten, an act of courage is remembered. Let me show you a picture. This is a picture that was taken at a rally in Hamburg, Germany in 1936. It is a picture of people with doing the Nazi salute, a sea of Nazi loyalists. Hitler was present at this rally, and the expectation was that everybody would salute him as leader of the Nazi party. There is one lone dissenter with his arms crossed. The man's name was August Landmesser, but he wasn't always a rebel. Initially, he was part of a signed-up member of the Nazi party. But then, in 1933, he met Irma Eckler, who was a Jew. Eckler was Jewish. The party revoked his membership and denied him a marriage license. But he went ahead anyway. The authorities told Landmesser to stop seeing Eckler, but he refused. He was arrested in 1938. He was sent to a concentration camp, and she was sent to prison. The birth of their second daughter took place while she was in prison. 
They never saw each other again after 1938. She died in prison in 1942. He was drafted into the war in the later stages of the war and in 1944 was missing in action. Was it worth it? Was it worth it? We're discussing his story now. That famous picture is known throughout the world as an image of defiance, an image of courage. No one finds courage through compliance. No one finds courage through a saluting crowd. We are inspired by those who display courage. Landmesser crossed his arms. The Egyptian Christians did not disown their faith. Mordecai refused to bow. And you and me, Mordecai's refusal, as we will see over the coming weeks, Mordecai's refusal to bow was the first in a link and a chain of courageous acts that led to the salvation of God's people. This was the first. This was the first act of courage and conviction that led to a chain of events and a chain of actions that led to the salvation of God's people. Let me say to you, each one of you, your resolve, your courage might be the decisive gesture that breaks the stronghold. Resistance matters. Second practical application. Decide now what you will do then. Don't wait until the heat of the moment. Decide now what you will do then. Because crisis is no time to prepare an escape plan. Being in the arms of your date when you're in a hotel room is not the time to make up your mind about what you believe about sex before marriage. The, the, the day of your final exams, when there's an offer of the questions there for you to take, is not the time to decide what you believe about honesty. One of the commentators on this passage talking about Mordecai moments gave this really helpful illustration. They said, the reason why the airline attendant points to the emergency exits before takeoff is because we don't think clearly in free fall. You don't think clearly in a crisis. So you need to know where the exits are before the crisis comes. Mordecai refused to bow. Each one of us, before God, needs to resolve as much as possible in our hearts before we get to the crisis, the event, the challenge, the moment of courage. Job 31 and verse 1, Job says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. Daniel, again, makes a resolve. Daniel 1 verse 8, proposed in my heart that I would not defile myself. Examples of making the resolve now, now, before you get to the challenge, the crisis, the moment of reckoning. Make up your mind now what you will do 
then. Third piece of practical application. Stand up for God and he will stand with you. 150 years earlier than the book of Esther, we meet three other Hebrews who refused to bow as well. The situation was this. King Nebuchadnezzar had made the most huge statue, 90 feet of pure gold that was nine feet wide. And he commanded every citizen to bow down before this idol. Daniel chapter 3, I'm just going to read verse 4 to 6. It won't come up on the screen, this one. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar set for you. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Everyone bows down except for three Jews. Verse 12. There are certain Jews who you have appointed over the affairs of the promise of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the best three names in all of Scripture, in my opinion. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar went into a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought to him. So they brought these men before the king, skipping a couple of verses to verse 15. Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the harp, the bagpipe, every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of your hands? Let me just be real for a moment. No matter how much wisdom, humility, graciousness we demonstrate in this world, there will come a moment when our faith will be under fire. There will come a moment when we will be asked to do something contrary to Scripture. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this moment in time did not waver. Nebuchadnezzar goes ballistic. He's so angry that they won't comply that he turns up the furnace by seven times. He kind of turns it up on the dial, dial seven times hotter, seven times more of a raging fire. It says that the soldiers who were close by, who were putting the fire to a higher temperature, died because it was such a hot heat. And then Nebuchadnezzar positions himself to watch. I always think this bit's a bit morbid, but he, he positions himself to watch what is going to happen. He wants to watch these three men crash and burn into cinders. He wants to see them sizzle. Let's read verse 24. Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, Yes, O king. 
He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Three men untouched by the flames, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and a fourth of divine appearance. Jesus stood there with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. And the Hebrew trio who stood up for God, who stood up and would not bow down, had a far greater impact than they could have ever imagined. Listen to what happens right at the end, what Nebuchadnezzar's reaction is. Verse 27, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed and no smell of fire had come upon them. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Wow. 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 What a transformation that has taken place by three men showing courage and faith in their Lord God. They stood up for the Lord and God was with them. Let me say to all of us, stand up for God and he will stand with you. That's what I love about that, that story. Can't you picture it? They're in the fire, but Jesus is there with them. When we stand up for Jesus in this world, in the challenges that we face, Jesus stands with us. He doesn't say, oh, go on, I'll watch from afar, see how you get on, I'll grade you out of 10. No, he stands with us. There's a story around the beheading of the Christians in Libya. That is probably true. Just read a little around it. People think that it's true. Uh, but there's a story, some evidence to suggest that one of the men who walked onto the beach was not an Egyptian Christian. You see, uh, they, 20 of them were Egyptian Christians, Egyptian Christians who were beheaded for their belief. But, but one of them wasn't. One of them was from Ghana. They, they were workers in Libya, uh, earning money to send back to their families. But, but the evidence that we have tells us that one of the number was from Ghana and wasn't an Egyptian Christian. But when he saw the faith of the men around him, he was so moved to trust in God. And when the time came for him to make a decision and to denounce Christianity and live, or denounce the gospel and die, his words were, their God is my God. Their God is my God. 
Wow. You see, courage is contagious. It's contagious. It takes, takes one to stand up and others to then follow. Courage is contagious. To conclude, church 2022 and what lies ahead is a time for courage. It's a time for us individually and corporately to be men and women of courage. And here's how I'd put it. I think we need to, in the days ahead, be, and this is the important intersection of these two things I'm going to say. We need to be kinder and braver than ever before. And I think sometimes Christians can be very kind, but not very brave. And sometimes Christians can be very brave and in your face and not very kind. We need to be kind and brave, kinder and braver than ever before. You see, resistance matters. We need to decide now what we will do then. And when we stand up for Jesus, he will stand with us. One final comment, and then we're going to worship and respond. One final comment. I believe the posture of courage is humility. The posture of courage is humility. You think of the people we've looked at today. Mordecai stood straight, humbly, but refused to bow. You think of August Landmesser. He stood humbly with his arms crossed. You think of the Egyptian Christians who kneeled humbly but would not denounce their faith. You think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Humbly put their faith and trust in God. The posture of courage is humility. That's the challenge for all of us. As we go out into the world, we go to our homes, we go to our workplaces. We spend time with our friends who aren't Christians. The challenge is to be full of courage, but from a posture of humility.